why the book even comes close. The United States buys the most Bibles, but Italy reads it the most. The different versions use all the, use all the same things, they just use different words. They do it because it helps make them easier to understand. NIV is the most easiest one to read, but the King's James Version is kind of like Shakespeare or poetry. The Bible is divided into two halves. The Old Testament is what, ha what happened before Jesus, and the New Testament is what happened after Jesus. The Gospel means the four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Pentateuch is the term for the first five books in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Bible is a collection of 66 total smaller books. There's different types. Biography, stories, and prayers. Poetry, history, wisdom, songs. Instructions and letters. We find them in the table of contents right here. All Bibles have the same order. While God gave them the words to say, it was written by 40 to 45 different authors. The Old Testament was written between 1400 to 400 BC. The New Testament was written 50 to 180. Hebrew and Aramaic for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. The big numbers are chapters and the smaller numbers are verses. See, this big number is the chapter of this. So really small number is the verse. See this uh, really small one? Yeah, it's really small. I don't think you, you can even see it. Can you see that? Can you see it? Well, it's great to see you all, and hello to those at 95th. Every week, every week, we open up the greatest bestseller of all time. The interesting thing about opening up this bestseller here and everywhere is that though people buy them, I mean, you hear that number of how many are sold every year? It's pretty amazing. You wonder, who are all these people buying all these Bibles? Imagine if everyone who bought all those Bibles really read it and were really familiar with what's here. 
what we're doing in this series is it's an opportunity for us, for some of us to get reacquainted with this book, and for others of us perhaps to get acquainted with dimensions of it for the first time. What I'm going to do tonight is talk about five different dimensions of the Bible. The fifth is really less a dimension than about what it looks like when we put it into practice. But I'm going to talk about these five dimensions. They're really like five snapshots. And they're five snapshots because each one could really be a sermon by itself. When I talked to some of my friends and told them what I was going to do, and told them that I was going to talk about all five of these points. Some of them thought that this was rather ambitious. But let's see how my ambition works out. So I'm going to do my best. But first, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in this word, in this bestseller. Lord, acquaint some of us anew, reacquaint others of us with this book and what you have given us in it. Pray we do this through the power of your Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So the first snapshot, the first point is this. It's more than inspiring. Why do I say it's more than inspiring? I say it's more than inspiring inspiring because there are a lot of great, dramatic, exciting things in this book. Just like there are lots of dramatic things that are going on right now over in Sochi, in Russia. Perhaps some of you have been spending some time watching the Olympics. Yes, some of you. And one of the things that makes us watch it, why we have such anticipation about it, it's not even always the events themselves. But it's like the backstories of all the people, how we get to know those people. Like, let's take, for example, Merrill Davis and Charlie White, the ice dancing team. They've been ice dancing together since they were kids. Interesting story about when they first came together. When they first came together, she was nine, he was eight. You know, when they do this ice dance, you may notice that they stare at each other a whole lot. Well, she couldn't stare at him. She was shy, felt a bit awkward about it. She, she didn't know what to do. She wanted to be there, but she couldn't look him in the eye. So what their coach did was take a smiley face and put it on his forehead and said, look at the smiley face. Eighteen years later, hours and hours and hours and hours, probably more hours than we can imagine. 18 years later, gold medal. And if you see them, it's, an, it's amazing. And we read about her story, his story, we watch them succeed, and we're moved by it. We, it really inspires us. Some of us, we feel like, you know, it's people like that that inspire me to keep trying, to keep pushing. And sometimes what happens when people read the Bible, they see stories in there. And they say these are really inspiring stories. People read stories like David and Goliath, Daniel and the lion's den. They read all the stories about what Jesus did. And perhaps you've even had conversations with people 
who when you talk to them about the Bible, they go, oh, I love the Bible. I love it because it's so inspiring. I love all those stories. It really moves me. But they're not necessarily ready to say that it's God's word or that it has authority over them. But the fact of the matter is this. It's more than inspiring. Because the God who gave us this word actually moved to bring it to us. One of the greatest things that God does, one of the most prominent things that God does is speak. Think about the number of times in the Bible where you have God said. Thus saith the Lord. The word of the Lord came. It's all over the place. And the way the scripture itself tells us about this, it gives us this interesting word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says this about the Bible. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. Some of your translations will say, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is what I mean by saying it's more than inspiring. It's inspired by God. What do we mean when we say it's inspired by God? We're saying that this book isn't an ordinary book. We're saying the God who is the greatest communicator of all, he speaks to us in this book. He acted to bring us this book, to bring us these words. Now, the thing is, we might say, we look at this word, we say, well, it's God-breathed or it's inspired. And we might ask ourselves, well, how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, there's another text that's really helpful to us in this regard. And this is closer to the back. This is in 2 Peter chapter 1. It almost gives us a description of exactly what happens. Very interesting. So in 2 Peter, here's what he says. Start at verse 20. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. The prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men, now watch this, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when people illustrate this, they use the analogy of a sailboat. For a sailboat to get to wherever it's going to go, it needs wind to take it there. But of course, sailboats don't just get wherever they're going to go. If you just put up a sail, you put up the boat by itself, the wind blows and then it gets there. The wind blows and it takes it somewhere, but there are people in the boat. And they're doing their steering, they're working. And it gets to that destination. That's kind of how it works with God bringing us this Bible in this act of inspiration. God is working with those people in their time, in their place, and in their language. And he so identifies with it and works with it. It's a very mysterious thing, but it's what he does by the Spirit so that the result, what we get, is Scripture. 
It's God's words. All those authors, remember all those authors they were talking about, about 45 of them? All of them were like divine ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does? An ambassador represents someone else. And they stand and speak for that person. They don't speak for themselves. This is what is going on with every author in the Bible. This is what it means for the Bible to be inspired. And because it's God's word, it's not just inspiring, interesting stories that move us, but God has moved to bring us these words, and they're his authoritative words, God's words. It's more than inspiring. Second snapshot, point number two. I like to say the Bible has the Jesus seal of approval. Perhaps some of you have heard of the good housekeeping seal of approval. And for those of you who who haven't heard of it, this is basically what it is. You know, there are lots of appliances on the market. People are selling us something all the time. How do you know that something is really worth buying? There's so many, I mean, you have a lot of products that look identical. How do you know which one to choose? How do you know which one is going to be as good as advertised, perhaps better than advertised? How do you know which one is going to last? Which one's going to be durable? Well, what good housekeeping has been doing for over a century is they've been testing all the products. And the ones that they think you should buy, not because someone paid them to say it, but because they passed the test, are the ones that get the good housekeeping seal of approval. So if you get a product and it has the good housekeeping seal of approval, you think when you buy it, this product, I can trust it. This product is going to do the trick. I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to be cheated. It has a stamp of approval. Good housekeeping has now put their sort of stamp of authority on it. Well, the same thing had to happen with Jesus, actually. Now, we're 2,000 years removed from Jesus, and we think Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, he's great, he's amazing. Well, they knew Jesus was an amazing teacher. They knew he healed. They knew he did great things. But people weren't exactly sure what to think of him a lot of the time. And they certainly weren't always sure because he was this new teacher who didn't come up through the system like the Pharisees did. People didn't know what to think about what he was going to be saying about what had come before. What about the law of Jesus? What about the prophets? Well, over in Matthew, he answers this question for us. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. This is the Sermon on the Mount. There are lots of people there. Doubtless, there are people who are excited. Doubtless, there are skeptics. People who wonder, I wonder what he thinks of the law. What does he think of the prophets? So Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. You want to know what Jesus thought about what we call the Old Testament, about everything that came before him? He says, I came to fulfill it. I'm not replacing anything. It's got my stamp of approval for sure. What I'm teaching, what I'm doing, is part of that same story. It's not a new story. It's right along with it. So he approves of what came before him. And that's important for us because sometimes we like to, somebody like to say they're New Testament Christians, which suggests there's something wrong with the Old Testament. No, no. Jesus said, this is important for us. So he rubber stamps that. So he goes behind him in history in that direction and gives it his stamp of approval. And then he goes through his ministry, teaching, performing miracles, goes to the cross, gets resurrected, and eventually has to say so long to his disciples. But before he says so long, he gives them something to do. He says in Matthew 28, we call the Great Commission, verse 18 through 20, Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So there's no question about who this is. Okay, Jesus is who he said he was. This is God become flesh, the one with all authority. And then he tells them, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He commissions them to teach what he taught, which includes affirming what came before him. And now what they're going to teach is just stating, restating what he taught. What we have in the New Testament is nothing more than Jesus' disciples teaching what he taught. It's nothing new in those letters, but it's just continuing what he taught. And perhaps we get nervous about, well, how do I know if I trust them, etc.? Acts 1 is very interesting. Jesus tells them. I mean, they, they want power. They want to take over Rome at that point. Jesus is like, no, it's not going to happen. But he says, this is what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And you are going to be my witnesses. And those disciples are those witnesses. And they're the ones who are giving us what we have in the New Testament. They're continuing what Jesus said. Jesus gives his approval this way. He gives his approval that way. And and the Spirit comes to make sure that what they're saying continues what he says. Same thing happens in John 14. The Spirit is going to come and bring to their mind what he taught them. And they're going to pass it on. There's a word that we talk about with with the books that we have in the Bible, canon. All the books that we have. The canon, the reason we have the ones in the New Testament that we have is because those people 
had to either be directly a disciple of Jesus or they had to be like this with someone who was a disciple of Jesus. And that's how those books got approved. You know how sometimes there's a new story about or a new book that gets released about other books that didn't get in the New Testament, suggesting basically that there was some grand conspiracy basically to, to keep out those books, as if there wasn't seriousness in affirming the books that we have. There was no one single person that said, what we have from Matthew to Revelation, it gets in because of me. No, no. This happened because the early church leaders said, here's how we can trust it. They were either with Jesus or right along with someone who was with Jesus. And those are the books that we have in the Bible. That's because if they're with Jesus or someone close to Jesus, that's how they're making sure that the Jesus stamp of approval is there. So the Bible is more than inspiring, it has, and it has the Jesus seal of approval. Third, it's alive. Now, you know, I have to admit, when I say it's alive, there's a part of me that says, okay, everybody, if you brought a Bible, put it up to your ear like this and listen for the pulse of your book, but it doesn't have that. Or maybe look real close. Do you see something? Do you see respiration? Something like that? No, that's not what I mean either. I mean what it's talking about in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. A verse that many people memorize, that people talk about all the time. Hebrews 4, verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. No, we can't see our Bibles literally pulsating with life. That would be a very interesting experience. But these words that God gave, these inspired words, these words... They do what God intends for them to do, which is, one, communicate the truth, and two, when it communicates the truth, it's acting like a scalpel a little bit. That's why it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts through falsehood, and it exposes falsehood. When you put truth and falsehood beside each other, You can get some tension sometimes. The fact that it's living and active doesn't mean that everyone says, I'm so glad for the word of God today. They might say, don't talk to me. Because the exposure is too much. It really is cutting like a knife. They're like, it's cutting a little too close for me. Other times, we're so glad to know the truth. So glad to have it laid before us. This is what God's word does. It's living and active. 
It doesn't tell us what the response of those who hear it's going to be. But it does tell us what it's going to do. It's going to carry out the purpose that God has for it. It's going to reveal who he is and what he requires and tell us the truth. For a snapshot, it's for all of God's people. It's for all of God's people. Deuteronomy chapter 4, so I've been in the New Testament for a while, so now we're going way back to the beginning almost. In that part they call the Pentateuch, those first five books. Deuteronomy chapter 6, they are about to go into the promised land, the people of Israel. And Moses is reminding them about God's law in this whole book. And here is what he says in verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, and watch this part. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, here's the thing. Moses isn't only talking to a special interest group in Israel. He isn't saying, okay, leaders, leaders, okay, come here. All right, you teach your kids. Everybody else, they can just have a little special nugget of the knowledge, you get it all. You get it all. No, this is everyone. It's always been God's intent that what he reveals is for all of his people, not just for people that are especially interested in spiritual things. If a person is a Christian, all of God's word is for you. It's for all of us to study, for all of us to learn. You don't have to have been in grad school for 10 years like me in order to understand what's in here. It's not only for someone like me to spend time studying this, to getting to know it. It's for all of us. That's what God has always wanted. Sometimes, if someone really knows the Bible well, the response is, oh, so you're like really religious. Oh, so, so you're like really like serious about this faith thing. I didn't know that there were supposed to be Christians that weren't serious about it. Being Christian, being a follower of Jesus, that Jesus who told his disciples, teach them everything I commanded you, he didn't say just teach leaders. He said teach everybody. What's in here is for all of us. This is for all of God's people. This is our book, not just the book for the clergy. It's every Christian's book, the book of the church. Last snapshot. 
It's about the witness of the Bible. If we talk about the Bible being true, and there's some resources that, we're, that you're going to have available uh, to you in, in the bookstore, a lot of books we've recommended, they're going to tell you a lot of the facts about the Bible and about why it's trustworthy. Those are very, very important things. Why the Bible is something you can trust. And you can tell skeptics all of these facts. But here's a greater fact. Here's a greater fact. The greatest witness to the truth of the Bible is us. All of us are the greatest witness. This isn't a new idea. Even when Jesus was doing his ministry, he got a question from his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, he was in jail. And he wasn't quite sure if his cousin was who he said he was. So, in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, we read that John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. He replied to the messengers. Now, listen to what he says. Go back and report to John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. The point that Jesus is making is not just John. Did you hear the words I said? Do you know what my message is, John? No, what he said is John. Look at what I'm saying and look at what I'm doing. You know, in that same Matthew 5 passage I read earlier, Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Why? Because they see what you're doing. Now, I I understand that if I say that we're the greatest testimony to the truthfulness of the Bible, some people might get nervous. Are you saying I've got to be perfect? No, there's only one person who's perfect. There's only one Messiah, that's Jesus. So we don't all have to be perfect messiahs. And the truthful witness doesn't rest on any one single one of us. It's a corporate witness. It's what we are all doing collectively. In fact, in part, of, part of what makes it powerful is the fact that when we know we're not perfect, when we know we struggle, we know we have doubts, we know we don't get it right, but we say, in spite of all of that, I'm striving to live like someone who believes that Jesus is raised from the dead and he's coming back. Yes, we're in a society where sometimes people would give you the impression that Christians have a bad reputation right now. Some of that's because of very well-placed propaganda. Some of it's because Christians behave badly. But the fact is, is that 
If you look around the world at the most difficult places where there's poverty, where there needs to be development, where people need to go and put their money on the line and put their bodies on the line and commit to living in discomfort because they want to try to help improve people's lives and bring some flourishing. You know who's doing that? Conservative, Bible-believing Christians are the ones who are doing that. More than anybody else. More than anybody else. But we don't talk about that a whole lot. But you know why they do it? Because they believe this book. And our collective witness together is the kind of thing where if someone really says, they ask the question, who is God? Who is Jesus? Really, if you put us all together, God says, look at my people. Look at my people and you will see why my word is true. Because if you look at all my people, you'll see why all my word is true. The best defense, the best apologetic of this word's truthfulness is us. That spirit who, made, who brought the word to us is living in us, empowering us, transforming us, and helping us together to be the great corporate witness to God's great word. Perhaps you don't think you're the greatest messenger of the good news individually. You probably are a better witness than you can think. And maybe you say, I've got a long way to go. We've all got a long way to go. That's all right. That's all right. We've all got a part to play. And God of the Spirit is working in us and making it possible for us to have lives that say to the world that this word right here is the truth. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, that your word is truth, that you make it possible for us to be your witnesses. Lord, even if we have doubts at times, even if we're discouraged at times, help us to turn to this word that you've given us. And by your spirit, help us to see more and more the truth that you've brought to us in your word. And help us not to just see it, but to put it into practice. And Lord, together may we in this church and may our brothers and sisters in churches everywhere else be those whose lives say to the world that there's a reason why this book is indeed the bestseller. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.